Well, hello again and welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And it's great to be with you here again. It's also great to be getting so much interaction and feedback from you on the different episodes and editions that we put out of Two Ways News. Uh, The little episode we put out a few weeks ago on the atmospheric church, on the nature of what the the experience of church should be like and how that relates to singing and other things. We've received a whole number of emails about that. And as I run into people and talk about it, um, I've got a lot of feedback on that issue and a number of questions. And it's just prompted me, Philip, to think we maybe should have another bite at this question. And in particular, to talk about how we should think theologically about what we're doing in church. And so I decided I'd put together a little argument for you, Philip. I'm going to run, try and run this argument <laughs> past you and get you to critique it as, we, as I go and to contribute in your inimitable way. My argument's in two parts. It says, speaking as an Anglican, let's bring back the congregational choir. Ah, that's really good. Yes, I can I can feel the warmth of the atmosphere already around about me. Just imagine the atmosphere mean, that that would create if we brought back the choir. Does this mean if you're not an Anglican, you should stop listening? <laughs> it certainly means, no, it certainly means that whatever you associate with Anglicanism and your experience of Anglicanism in your particular part of the world, which may not... Uh, to be fair, um, be entirely conducive to a wonderful atmosphere of church, depending on which kind of Anglicanism you've experienced. I want you to put all that to one side because oh. the kind of Anglicanism I'm talking about is real Reformation Anglicanism. Oh, not Edwardian chanting. No, and not the kind of high church choirs with their choir boys and the whole sort of King's College Cambridge business. I'm talking about something quite different, which we'll come to in a bit. But uh, let's do it in two parts. Speaking as an Anglican, first part, and bring back the choir in the second part. What do I mean by speaking as an Anglican? Anglicanism is a Reformation faith. It's like the other great Reformed faiths. It's built on the great solas of the Reformation, that salvation is found through Christ alone, uh, and that Christ, we trust in him in faith by faith alone, and the Christ whose death we trust in is only known through the Scriptures alone. And Anglicanism, of course, was forged amidst fairly fierce opposition to the Roman Catholicism of its time. And in terms of church and the atmosphere of church and what church was like, it was forged in opposition to an essentially mystical and kind of mediatorial view of church, where the priests stood between the people and God. In medieval Catholicism, the priests were dressed in special robes. They spoke a special language that only they knew, Latin, the people generally didn't know that what they were saying. They performed a sacrifice of Christ in some mystical, mysterious way with the bread of and the wine uh, to mediate and bring salvation to the people. And that's what the experience of church was like. And the singing and the, the choir and the atmosphere was, of course, all part of that. It was also the preserve of the experts in the Reformation. In fact, I think in the Reformation, Philip, you were saying this to me uh, before, that Prior to the Reformation, the church tended to have often had two choirs singing antiphonally, but the uh, the people didn't actually sing; they just listened. Is that correct? Yes, 
Yes, I mean, one of your problems about Anglicanism, if you're going to take this line, is Anglicanism is the Church of England from the time when it first started, and we're not actually sure when that is. The Council of Arles in 312, they were there, which is long before even St. Augustine arrived in England. It goes through the 21st century. And over all this huge period of time, it has expressed itself in different ways. You're coming in on Reformation Anglicanism, and for me, that's the right place to come in because that's confessional Anglicanism rather than just, I happen to be an Englishman and therefore I'm in the Church of England. And also because when it's made constitutional, uh, especially as here in Australia, the Book of Common Prayer is the standard of worship. And all liturgical variations that have happened since are only legitimate in as much as they are expressing the Book of Common Prayer, as seen in 1662, and the 39 Articles. So it's legitimate to say genuine Anglicanism is Reformation Anglicanism. But Anglicanism covers every loony bin person who's down at a local church doing what they're doing in a building called Anglican. Indeed. Um, it's, a, it's a very broad church, as they say. Uh, and m much of it, um, as you may experience it, dear listeners, in different parts of the world where you are, you'll be surprised for us to be saying that, in essence, Anglicanism, real confessional Anglicanism, is reformational. But it's expressed in what you're saying, Philip, about the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer kind of expresses the, the heart of the revolution that really happened in the 16th and 17th centuries uh, regarding what church was and why we went to church and what sort of experience and atmosphere and whole uh, way of being that church expressed. Because in contrast to the Roman Catholic vision of church as a place where you went in order to ex have something done for you by a priestly class who mediated God to you and mediated everything to you, in Reformational Protestant churches, there was a revolution because they wanted a, a church service and a church gathering that was in the language of the people that wasn't in Latin. They wanted church to consist of the people gathering to hear the word of God in a language they understood and to respond together as the people of God in a common language. That's why I guess it's, it's the book of common prayer. And in many ways, if you took out of the book of common prayer all the Bible reading in English and all the prayers that we say together in English and all the confessional psalms and creeds and other things we say together to declare our faith together, there really wouldn't be very much left of the Book of Common Prayer. It's almost no singing. You talk about atmosphere and singing. I think it's only one part of the prayer book where it actually talks about uh, an anthem should be sung or could be sung at this point. In the calendar of readings, it's called Even Song rather than evening prayer. But that, I just think that's an editorial hangover from what it used to be. But you're right, the, the singing of medieval church was choir, you know, two choirs singing antiphonally back and forth, plain song, which if you've never heard plain song, there's many notes, any one kind of word or any even syllable. It wafts around a lot. It's kind of mystic Platonism. Which was, in a sense, the driving force behind that kind of vision of church. And one of the striking things about the Reformation was that they thought theologically and fought theologically for what church was going to be like out of a theological understanding of, of the basics of Christ and of the word and of faith and of grace. 
And it was one reason why if you went to church post the Reformation, if you went to a church in England after the Reformation or during these great upheavals, church looked very different. And in fact, there were riots and upsets and many of the common people disliked it because it was so different from what they were used to. You would go to church and it was a church where there was Bible and there was prayer in your language and you were there together to gather around that word and to participate. And so Perhaps strangely for many of our listeners who may have experienced Anglicanism differently in different places, in a sense, the genius of Reformation Anglicanism was is this was a church in which we gather together to speak intelligibly in our language with each other and mutually to edify one another with the, with the word of God, in which Christ is present through that word. And the singing which came along with that was a was a natural development of that theology. So even though the Book of Common Prayer itself doesn't specify much singing per se, post the Reformation or at the time of the Reformation with Luther and the other reformers, and this happened in the English church as well, there was a revolution in singing as well, that singing was now the job of the people. It was something that the people joined in doing rather than having done for them. Because you're right, Luther was a great lover of music. And Luther, as I remember it, very happy for our listeners to check up on all this detail because I'm working off memory here. Not personal memory, I wasn't there. I just want to make that. <laughs> but, uh, as I remember it, Luther saw that for congregational singing to work, you really need to have one note for one syllable so that the plain person can sing in a way which is just obviously intelligible to them because intelligible singing of the every man was the Christian way to have music. He and the other reformers co-opted common tunes of the time, folk tunes, simple tunes, popular tunes, not kind of the, the high, sophisticated music of the sophisticated cultural kind of elite, but the everyman kind of music that could be sung by every person. And of course, Luther's great hymns, you know, Ein Festerberger, a great stronghold, Our God is Still, and those other great Reformation hymns were part of, of a revolution, part of a change in the whole way they thought about church. And it comes out of this theology that says, church is about God's people gathering around the word and speaking it to each other in all sorts of ways and responding to it in all sorts of ways. Uh, it's about the priesthood of all believers rather than a vision of church where everything is done for you up the front, where you come to have God mediated to you by the experts up the front. And it, it's funny how quickly and easily we kind of degenerate back into that and how in an entirely different way in many contemporary churches, that's what church now kind of looks like where the participation of the congregation is diminished and everything happens up the front. We, we don't have many responsive or joint prayers or things we say or do together um, responsively or in unison. We have perhaps one short Bible reading uh, rather than more extensive Bible readings. We don't say any psalms together. We have a sermon by by someone up the front, often a long sermon by the theological expert up the front as well. We have lots of announcements about all the things that the church is putting on and all the ways in which it wants you to be involved in what's happening. Um, and when it comes to the singing, that too seems to be something that now has to be mediated by by the experts, by a band, by two or three singers, by a band that's rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and that pumps out music at quite a volume so that whether the congregation is singing or not, kind of doesn't seem to matter hugely much because it's all being done up the front and the experience is being generated up the front. I'd warn you about pushing too far in this distinction. I agree with it. That's fundamentally right. 
But at the time of the Reformation, the education levels were not that. The publication of the Bible was still only fairly new. And so there was still a lot of stuff done up front. Of course. So the service was led by the presbyter or uh, by the deacon in the Anglican church. That is, today we have many more people popping up, reading the Bible or leading in prayer, whereas the prayer book just assumes that the minister in the local village, the parson, he's the person, and he read all the prayers, he read all the Bible readings. You didn't have lay people doing the Bible readings. You'd only have the sermon on the Sunday morning during communion or anti-communion. So there was a still a upfront leadership, though I think it was a functional upfront leadership. It was, we live in a, the age of universal education. So we have lay people doing things the prayer book never imagined. But certainly the confession, the, the number of prayers in which the congregation joined together and the teaching of those prayers by having the same ones week in, week out, was one of the factors and functions of the church and of the Reformation changing things. And so there has been some shifts to more congregational participation than the Reformation, but I think they're in line with the direction the Reformation was going. That's quite right. I'm not suggesting, uh, this is not an exercise, my little argument here is not an exercise in nostalgia. Uh, let's get back to a Reformation service and let's run Book of Common Prayer services every Sunday and then everything will be right. I'm going back to the way the Anglican reformers thought about church and theologically reformed it in their context. And as you say, that context is different in all sorts of ways to how we are now. But what I'm suggesting is, and I, which I think you're agreeing with as well, is that the, the drive was we want to, we want to move away from um, a fundamentally mediated mystical view of, of the congregational life that expressed a whole theology through Roman Catholicism to one in which the word of God was central and in which you gathered the, the congregation together to participate intelligibly and mutually in hearing and responding to the word of God together. Let me give you a little anecdote to show you're right. Okay. That is, when I was training for ministry, I went over to St. Patrick's College for a meal for an interchange with the Roman Catholic Seminary here in Sydney. During their meal time, they read the Bible out loud to us. Um, which I thought, you know, this, this is impressive. And my prejudices about Roman Catholicism are clearly, you know, need a little bit of shake up here because we don't read the Bible during mealtime at Moore College, but they read the Bible. However, when they did, they did it in Latin. Okay. So for, for quite some time, we sat there listening to these people reading in Latin. I, of course, had not ever studied Latin, so I really didn't know what was saying. So I asked the Catholic seminarians on the table with me, I said, um, do you understand this Latin? And they all looked aghast at me and said, no, no idea. We don't know what it is. And I said, well, why do you read what can't be understood? I said, is the man reading it understand? And they laughed again. He said, no, he's no better than we are. So I said, well, why are you reading the Bible in a language you don't understand? Well, that's what we do. <laughs> Now, for a Protestant, that's just unimaginable that you would bother doing such a thing. But in the 1970s, that wasn't unimaginable for Roman the Catholics. That was normality. In the 19, mm. sorry, the 1960s, it was, it was 1969, 1970, that happened. So as late as that, they're still reading the Bible in Latin to each other. Weird, really. 
it's strange, but it's part of a way of thinking about how we fellowship together, how we gather as people, how God communicates with us, what the role of tradition and rites and ceremonies are that plays out in all sorts of ways. And in my twofold argument here, which is there's an Anglican way of thinking about church going back to the Reformation that's got to do with the intelligibility and the centrality of the Word of God and the mutuality of that that I want to lean into and say, speaking as that kind of Anglican, I'd like to bring back the choir. Now, in saying I want to bring back the choir, I, I can see your face, Philip, and you, you've got a look of horror on your face. Why is that? Well, <laughs> because the choir in Anglicanism in the last 200 years, I guess, has so dominated congregational life in, in many places that it ceases to be the Reformation congregation. It just is a performance of music that no one other than those technically trained could ever sing. And, you know, I was in one church that went for an hour and a half, 55 minutes of the hour and a half was the choir singing to us. And it wasn't medieval singing, but it was, you know, that high watermark of Edwardian Anglicanism, dreary music to my taste, but it just was a performance. And I don't want us to go back to choirs leading congregational life like that because I just, it was a free concert. It was awful. And in a way, it's quite counter to the spirit of Reformational confessional Anglicanism, to, yes. the, to the commonality of the Word of God shared intelligibly together and responded to together. And yes. so you'll be relieved to know that the choir I want to bring back is the idea of the congregation as the choir, that the joy and privilege, the whole purpose of church singing and the whole nature of church singing is communal, that it's us singing the word of God to each other and responding to it together before and with God. And that that's just a very Anglican and Reformed thing to do, to have the people as the singers and the word of God as the content. Yeah, that kind of singing, I'm absolutely for. It's confessional singing. Yeah. I am sharing in the great truths that we are standing for, that we are hearing and learning about. It's my shared response with everybody else in the congregation to own it for myself, because singing's wonderfully emotional. When you sing great truths, you are attaching your brain to your heart, so to speak, and using those common metaphors that the things you've heard and understood, you are emotionally embracing and expressing. In COVID, the thing I missed the most was singing in church. Absolutely. My singing, our singing. Mm. I mean, Helen and I would, would come in on a Zoom to listen to a church and I could cope with the Bible reading, I could cope with the prayers, I could even cope with the sermon. But the congregational singing just didn't work. I mean, Helen sings beautifully, I sing yeah, well, never mind. And therefore, the two of us together don't make beautiful noise. And I'm twice as loud and half as musical as she is. And so it just didn't work. So effectively, we had a choir of one, and I sat and listened to her. And it, it just didn't work. And especially no. when a couple of our congregation were singing to us from the other side, from Zoom, and they were more like me than like Helen. I just was desperate to get back to church. And when we got back, we got back with masks and weren't allowed to sing. It was terribly difficult. And it kind of... Oh, it was awful. It was it, awful. It, and it highlighted what a wonderful gift singing and music is, 
because Absolutely. as you say it's it's something that you do with your whole body like it's you stand up and your whole not just your heart and your mind but physically your whole self and you're using yourself as a bellows and your and your uh, your voice box is the uh, is like the organ and and you're you're pumping out with your whole self what you believe with each other and affirming it together, confessing it together, all in this wonderful gift of musicality and singing. And, and so, and learning it together. Yeah. Because the lyrics that you sing in your songs, you learn more easily than your memory verses from the Bible, I'm sorry to say. It's, it's put your memory verse to music and you'll learn it much quicker. And so, yes, it's very important that we sing. It's one of the joys of life. It's one of the... People who don't know how to sing, or rather, not matter not know how to, people who don't enjoy singing are really missing out on something fundamental. There's a great Luther quote. I've got it here somewhere. Oh, here it is. Um, a person who does not regard music as a marvellous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not <laughs> deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> There's good yes. old Martin Luther, Martin Luther um, in typical so fashion. Subtle. Yeah. So subtle and understated, wasn't he? <laughs> as he always was. <laughs> um, and in a sense, the reason I'm running this little argument, speaking as an Anglican, I'd like to bring back the choir, that is the congregation as the choir, is for exactly this reason, that singing is, an, is a marvellous gift. And I'm concerned that, as we sort of stop thinking theologically about what we're doing in church and how we're doing it, our singing is becoming more priestly and less congregational. When you walk into the room and you listen to what's happening in the room, the sound of the band, drums, piano, bass, sometimes two guitars, two or three singers, all amplified, all singing, say, to a group of, working with a group of, say, 150 people in an average congregation or 120 people or 200 people even, it completely drowns out and dominates the room so that the sense that we are a choir singing is is much diminished. In fact, often I hear song leaders say things like, would you please join us now in singing this next song? Well, I, no, I don't want to join you in singing the song. I just, we're not joining you. You're accompanying and conducting us. We're, we're the singers, not you. And I'm worried that there's the natural tendency of all human theology and church theology to kind of degenerate back to mediation and to having experts who stand between us and God, um, that yes. we're losing some of our confessional, reformational kind of heartbeat by the congregation not being the choir. Because it okay, seems well, to me... Pick, if sorry. Pick up a couple of things there. Uh, I, I want to agree with you very much in that the musicians of today are taught and are modelled in the world as performers, whereas the musicians we need in church are accompanists. And not many people get trained in how to accompany rather than how to perform. And so that's one of the problems. Second problem, again, agreeing with you, the sheer volume of the noise generated from the front excludes congregational singing. So I was at a church recently and, you know, I bellowed with all my voice. I couldn't hear myself. I tried to hear Helen because she sings beautifully. No way. I mean, we're standing right next to each other. And so I gave up, frankly, and I looked around. The congregation had given up. 
we really just had two people out there out or three people out the front in that church with microphones. And then I started to listen to them and I couldn't really hear their words either because it was just a, it was a musical show being put on from the front, much like a concert. And, um, and very often, without wanting to be cruel, very often it's it's a fairly ordinary show by, by worldly standards. See, it's interesting, Philip. I really like loud music. Um, I, I, I'm in the, <laughs> of the generation that really enjoys loud music. When Alison's out doing something, I'll put something on downstairs and I'll crank it right up. And and, and I love volume. It's not that I dislike volume. Um, th- there's something wonderful about letting music kind of reverberate through you at, at volume. But it's not the it's not theologically and philosophically what we're doing together in church. We're singing together. It's not a case where we're we're looking for volume to emanate from the stage. In other words, there's a time and place for volume, and I love volume and I love music. But my fear and concern is that with the rise of the worship band um, and with the amplified worship band, it's no longer the congregation is a choir we're kind of like the audience at a concert and we're singing along with the band, which is a very different we're not, experience. We're not generating the volume. Exactly. I'm happy enough about volume. And I suppose if I'm listening to music, there are certain times that I like the volume. Exactly. I'm not sure I like it as much as you do, but then again, <laughs> I've still got my hearing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, when it comes to, to church, I want the volume to be generated from us exactly because we are excited about what's happening rather than the artificial volume generated by the amplifiers exactly. which really is no expression of whether we are excited about the great news that we're singing precisely and so in many ways if if speaking as an anglican i'd like to bring back the choir by which i mean the congregation is the choir then what you, you mean need speaking as a Protestant. Exactly. There we are. As a as a reformational confessional Anglican for all our our um, other reformational friends and Protestant friends, what would it mean for us to to bring back the congregational choir? It would be to arrange our music and think about our music in terms of how could I stimulate and help the congregation to sing. A, a choir doesn't need all that much accompanying. It needs a simple good tune that everybody can sing together. It needs perhaps a conductor to let us know when to come in. Uh, it might need a single accompanying instrument, perhaps. But if it's about the choir, whether that's a pub choir or a community choir that is so popular these days, you don't need much in the way of music and accompaniment because it's about the voices. It's about the congregations, uh, the congregational singing. And I, I feel like there's a reset required. I almost feel like it would be great if churches could just put away their bands for a month or two and just have a piano and a conductor who's not microphoned and start to teach the congregation and let the congregation hear themselves sing again and learn to sing again. Okay, well, there's a couple of little technical things you can do. Very low tech this is, right? One is the verse that's a cappella, the verse that you actually get rid of all the musicians Hmm. and uh, sing, which is done from time to time in churches. And I've noticed that when it's done, the singing lifts. We can hear each other. There's another one, too, that uh, we used to do many years, but I haven't seen it done for some time. That is, you know, all the women on verse 2, all the men on verse 3, and then we come back together again in verse 4, where you actually hear the other people in the church singing specifically, and you hear the difference between men and women 
and join in the complementarianism of the last verse. That little technique lifts the decibels considerably by the fourth verse. There's only a few little things like that that can improve congregational singing without much effort, frankly. I think it's also important that we teach and teach about congregational singing. So like everything we do in church, whether we, whether we would teach about prayer, teach about the Bible and the importance of the Bible, we need to teach from time to time about what congregational singing really is theologically, why it's important, and then model what we believe theologically in what we actually do. And I think oh, it would Wesley, work to do that. Wesley taught people how to sing. He did and of course, indeed. In the 18th century, there was a great movement of, of hymn singing through that time and the Wesleys in their writing, but Isaac Newton's and others and you know, they were writing hymns every week for their prayer meeting. What was the name of the collection of hymns that um, Newton wrote? Was it the Olney hymns? Was that it? Yes, the Olney hymns, that's right. Uh, And he had them from all different occasions. And it's interesting, I was chasing down something about Amazing Grace not long ago and and looking where it came from at the Olney Hymns. It's fascinating. They're grouped into all kinds of categories. So there's lots of hymns that are just based on particular passages. So this is what I'm preaching this week. This is the hymn we're singing this week that's about this passage. Or they're about different facets of our response to God and the Christian life. There are some hymns of response and praise and kind of rejoicing, but there are hymns of dedication and surrender, as he puts it. Or there are hymns of repentance or hymns of mourning and in times of lamentation. There's all these different facets of of the Word of God and our response to it and how that could be expressed in different songs, different hymns, um, which is another interesting facet of how singing tends to be today in congregations. There's not as much variety in the different kinds of songs we're singing, I think because of the genre that we've kind of fallen into as our kind of single genre of song. Yeah, it's a lazy genre, really. It feels like it. I've, I've, um, you mentioned Wesley. I've found Wesley's seven rules for singing. Uh, let me give you a couple of them. Here we go. Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you are half dead or half asleep. I like that one. <laughs> um, and this, the one that comes after is interesting. But sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation. Um, I think I'm guilty of the second of those two. <laughs> first, yeah. Well, look, if only that was our problem, that the congregation members were all singing so loudly as to compete with one another, that, that would be a problem we'd have to address, but I don't think it's the problem we currently have. No. Um, sing in tune, says Wesley. Whatever tune is sung, whatever time is sung, Keep with it. Don't run before or stay behind. <laughs> and um, and then finally, above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. In order to do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. Uh, because singing is a spiritual activity. It's a theological and spiritual thing. And I guess that's kind of what this little argument is I'm, I'm running today, that if we believe certain things because of the Reformation and the Bible, it should drive us theologically and spiritually to order our church gatherings and to think about them in a different way, uh, to be thoughtful and theological in the way we think about them. And that will mean lots of mutuality, lots of intelligible mutual participation, including as congregational singing, as a congregational choir. Yes. I'll tell you a little story of it. The ABC did a Christmas carol service every year until it was taken over by secularists to the extent that they don't have the carol service now produced in Australia. And they went around the cathedrals of Australia. One year the Roman Catholic, next year the Anglican. 
kind of thing. They came to Sydney, and so as I was the dean, they asked me to you know, put on this carol service, and uh, we did, and I invited half a dozen different congregations parish churches around to provide a congregation to come in and participate so as to make sure the cathedral was full of people who'd want to sing the praises of God. And after we'd got it all mic'd up, the choir, the orchestra, everything there, we sang the, the first carol with the congregation. The producer, who's a Roman Catholic, came across to me. I mean, it's all pre-recorded, so he stopped everything. And he came running across to me and said, you didn't tell me. And I said, didn't tell you what? He said, the congregation. They can sing. <laughs> He'd mic'd up everything but the congregation because in all the other cathedrals, it's the orchestra, it's the choir. And the Roman Catholic mindset, he was a lovely, lovely man and very helpful. But doesn't matter how many times I told him that we are different and part of our difference is our congregation singing, our people sing. It didn't compute with him until he heard them sing and then it was too late to actually include them in the show because it was all set up for the choir. Now, the choir did very well, the orchestra did very well, but it, it's that mindset difference as to what church is about, which comes out of the theology of the gospel that we saw in the Reformation, we saw in the Evangelical Awakening. But I think I agree with you, we're losing it in the 21st century or the late 20th century. I have another question, though, for you. How much is the problem that the 20th century and 21st century has moved more to percussion than it was previously? Was previous generations were more interested in harmony and melodies, whereas the music of the 21st century is very percussive, isn't it? On the whole, it is. It's certainly more percussive than it was in the past. Um, although it's a, this is a complicated question. How does culture and the changing nature of culture affect artistic and, and musical output because it certainly does um, you can see it in art very strongly of course how is how art changed over the course of the last 150 years and you can you can trace the the trends in artistic expression to philosophical ideas to the enlightenment and its breaking down of of older ideas and the same is true in music you much contemporary classical music or temporary highbrow music is atonal and awkward and strange and that's part of a rebellion against traditional forms, a rebellion against beauty in many ways. But popular music is this very mixed and, and complicated phenomenon because at one level, popular music, the kind of music we sing in church, is very predictable and traditional. It's four chords, it's it's dominant, the, the, the tonic, and then the subdominant, and then dominant, and back to the tonic. It tends in one sense to be quite predictable, safe, conventional music. And yet it's the music of, as you said before, of performance and of popular culture. So most of the songs we sing in church are kind of like Celine Dion's sort of power ballads. They're the earnest ballads of the late 20th and early 21st century that have, that have drums, but we don't sing rap in church, interestingly, which is very percussive and very rhythmic. Um, but we certainly are affected by the performance culture of cultural music and how the percussive aspect relates to that, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. See, you're asking me earlier on about critiquing what you're saying. I can, I can hear at one point you're saying church is not for us mystical experientialism and that's where the performance music tends to head towards. But I think I hear my friends also saying, well, there's no point inviting people in the society into church to hear the gospel unless we are doing it with the music they recognise, the music they feel comfortable with, 
And so you bring out your Wesley hymns and you bring out your Reformation hymns and suddenly you're no longer in the 21st century. And so they're saying, no, we, we're trying to sing the great truths in a musical uh, mode that fits the culture of today. But the musical mode of the culture of today is a performance mode yes. rather than the only, you talk about singing in the in the bar, but my knowledge, the only group of people who are now singing are school choirs, church. Christians are the people who sing. And possibly in some cultures, the, the football fans. So in England, it's the football fans who sing. They sing constantly all yes. through the match. We don't do yes, that so much do. here. Yes. Um, and it's interesting as a form of communal singing. I think um, it's in some ways closer to the, the Christian ideal of communal singing. They're simple tunes that we all sing together. And in that sense, culturally appropriate, I'm, I'm sort of mocking the four-chord song, but in a way I'm critiquing myself there because the songs of the Reformation and the songs of Wesley, and they were simple songs. They weren't complicated songs. And so the simple tunes and melodies and structures of contemporary music are appropriate for us to sing to. Um, the difficulty comes when what we're wanting to do with that music and how we're wanting to sing doesn't fit with the with the pop culture or um, or the cultural trend. And I think it it may mean we need to adapt that kind of music into its own form, into our distinctive form of singing. I'm, I'm not suggesting we should just all sing Wesley hymns by any means, but we need to evolve a form of communal singing that we can do together that works as a big congregational choir. And to some extent, we shouldn't be afraid to be different. Exactly. We shouldn't be afraid to have music that is Christian music, not just Christian music because it's got Christian words, but Christian music, because this is the the ways in which we want to sing, as opposed to the cultural music of the day. So I saw a critique of a Christian singer. You know, it's a, a YouTube critiques they have of of different singers and they pointed out that he had a beautiful voice and it was very complimentary of him but it said but because he's a, a man concerned with the words he didn't hang on to his vowels long enough but used the consonants to make the words make sense and i thought yeah well if that's it if if we are singing words that make sense yes okay well we will sing differently differently and in one sense, if you invite someone into church, as we've said, and there's nowhere else in our culture where a big group of people get together and sing lustily and with all their hearts, um, it's going to be different. It's going to be yes. unusual. It's going to be striking. Yes. Uh, if it's if it's a band performing up the front, performing music, and we kind of might be singing along, but basically what you hear is the band, well... That's fine. That's, in a sense, easy for people to come in and, and participate in and just listen along with. The newcomer can just listen along, but they don't appreciate or understand at that point why we're different and why the gospel transforms the way we relate together such that we really want to sing. Yes. Um, it's, very it's a very powerful testimony to go into a church that sings well. And yes. the voices rise, and you, you, it's an astonishing sound to hear a couple of hundred people singing at the top of their lungs together because they believe in something. Yes. It's a powerful testimony. And and I see the people around me believe this matter. It's not just the preacher out the front. And it's not just the professional singers out the front. They're supposed to sing what they're singing. But the bloke beside me, the bloke behind me, the woman over the other side of the aisle, they're singing, and they mean it. And that's an important testimony. 
and if I can say this, Philip, even standing next to someone like you, whose whose enthusiasm is not matched by their musical skill, uh, I'm actually more encouraged when I stand next to someone like you singing because I'm thinking this guy cousin he can't even sing very well, but he's he's giving it everything he's got because he believes it. Because normally people who can't sing very well they pipe down. They don't they don't want to embarrass themselves. They they don't want to sing, but when it's when the tone deaf person next to me is really having at it and and singing with all their heart, I find that an enormous encouragement. I don't embarrass myself ever. I embarrass my family. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, we all know how that goes. I've done that many times myself. Um, Philip, it might be it might be a good point at which to round off. In fact, we've wandered on for a little while in today's podcast, but I hope. Dear listeners, you don't mind that. In fact, some of you have been saying you should feel quite free to go longer in your podcasts. Podcasts can be longer. That's okay. And perhaps you shouldn't give us that encouragement because you might get what you ask for. Um, there's one final thing I did want to ask you, Philip. As we come to this kind of time of the year, we've been we've been running with this podcast now for about nine months, I think. We started October last year. And um, I think we're kind of finding our range and finding our voice and kind of figuring out what we're trying to do and and how we're trying to do it and we're trying to you know spread the word as far as we can and um and push this podcast out um but in terms of supporting it and funding it we're still a bit short we still need some help and so we're wanting to ask our listeners those of you who are listening today or those of you who are reading this on the newsletter to consider joining our supporters club because that's needed as well. Tony, I'm, I'm sure our listeners understand we're always embarrassed about talking about money, but I think after nine months, we are now clearer as to where we're going. And I think you and I have been talking about a little bit more of an expansion in terms of having a more concrete plan for our coming days of a series, a couple of series rather than just a weekly. And we're also concerned that we need the... Uh, recommendation of our listeners to their friends but we need to be addressing a little bit more a little wider audience if we can we tend to be talking to christians and we need to be talking to the world as well as christians so we're getting a little clearer as to what we are doing and why we're doing and looking to expand in that area and friends it does take money um not not money for tony and me particularly but for the whole production and our producer, etc., it takes money to make it better. And so if you haven't thought of giving before, then please do. And if you are giving and can increase that giving, now is a really good time so that we can expand what we're doing to reach more people, especially to start reaching your friends and your neighbours and outsiders uh, as we just tweak it a little bit to be able to do that. But I never know the mechanics, Tony, so tell, tell us how we go about subscribing like that. It's pretty simple, really. The platform that we put this uh, newsletter and podcast out through called Substack uh, has a fairly simple mechanism for supporting a newsletter or a podcast, and they call it subscription. We think of it as support and and uh, partnership, but they call it subscription. So if you go to twoways.news slash subscribe, you'll see a number of options there will come up on your screen. If you go to the twoways.news website, you'll see the subscribe button there as well if, if, you, if you need that. And you'll see that there's the free option just to sign up to get the, the newsletter and the podcast free. But then there are a number of paid options that you can take up. And that's really the simple way 
to support to join our supporters club so uh, to go to that page and click either a monthly or an annual uh, subscription rate and there's an option to write in your own subscription rate if you want to give a little bit more uh, that's the simple way to join our supporters club and we're really grateful if you could do that because it'll help us keep doing this and hopefully expand it as philip's saying and because we want to keep it as a free service so while we want our friends to be able to contribute towards it we want those who just want to listen and not pay anything to be able to do so. And that's especially so with those who don't know the Lord Jesus and whom we want to commend him to them. Absolutely. That's right. So some, some podcasts like this one have a, an occasional free post and then the rest of it is behind a paywall and you have to pay in order to get it. We decided not to do that uh, with Two Ways News. We send every episode out to everybody. Uh, and we encourage our subscribers, if our listeners and readers, if they can, to jump in and become a supporter by taking out one of those subscriptions. Well, thanks, Philip. Thanks for um, the conversation about Anglicanism, com uh, theology and singing and the communal choir. And I hope, dear listeners, it's helped stimulate you to think about not just how church happens where you are, but what the culture of singing and choir, the culture of the congregation as the choir is like where you are. And I'm sure you'll get in touch and let us know your reactions and thoughts and comments. And I hope what we've said today stimulates you to think further about that. Um, how about we close in prayer? It might be your turn to close in prayer this time, Philip. Will you close <laughs> okay, in prayer for us? Right. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the wonderful gift that you have given to us in the music of this world. But just as we enjoy the, the diversities of tastes and uh, the diversities of colours, you give us the diversities of sound and this wonderful ability to produce sound and to experience it and to enjoy it. And by this, to be able to praise you, to set the praise that we have for you and the teaching that we have for each other into music, which enables us to be committed to it, to learn it, to uh, share it with others and to enjoy it with each other. As we thank and praise you, Father, for this wonderful gift that you've given to us and pray you'd help us, Father, to use it in ways that will bring glory to you and will engage and involve all congregations and all the members of the congregations that as we teach one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual things, it might be a truly one another experience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.